Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. How do you know when you're ready to write a memoir or if you have a story to tell at all? Well, in this episode, we speak with the writer Huma Qureshi about how she tackled these questions as she wrote her book, How We Met, a memoir of love and other misadventures. In this conversation, we talked to Huma about how she approached difficult subjects like grief and loss and personal family history. And we also go deep into her journey, how she made it through from journalism to writing first-person personal essays and how she ultimately prepared, wrote, and edited a memoir. This conversation took place in lockdown. Homer was generous, honest, and vulnerable with us. If you're writing a memoir, you'll love this. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Homer Qureshi. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Let's welcome to the stage, Huma. Come on down. Imagine <laughs> a wild, raucous applause. That was a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> We're so glad to have you here. One of the first questions we like to ask every writer we interview here if we could hold this interview in person, anywhere in the world, where would that be? Oh, wow. What a dream to be anywhere in the world, but <laughs> the same place where we've been for so long. I think it might not be going far afield, but I have, um, I live in North London. And one of the things that I have missed so much in lockdown has been able to go to my favorite cafes. Uh, I used to have this place where I used to go and write. So I think, even though it's not far-flung or exotic, my favorite place, and I think in my head, when my, like before the pandemic, and I knew my book was coming out, but I didn't think it would be in lockdown, I had in my head that I wanted to do something in that very dear favorite cafe of mine in Mother Hill, which is called La Dinette, and it's the loveliest place in the world. And in my head, I'd always pictured doing something really cozy there, like when the book came out. It never happened, because sadly... We can't go in. <laughs> so I think taking you there. She does the best brownies. She's the best banana bread with like this homemade jam. It's delicious. I would have taken us there. <laughs> well, let's imagine we're there. It's us and 132 of our best friends all credited. <laughs> but we can fit because we're online. But let's we'll imagine we're there. So to kick us off, Bernadine Avaristo, Booker Prize winner, said of your work. Lively and fresh writing with an increasingly gorgeous use of language. What was she talking about? And can you tell us what is praise from someone like her feel to receive? Wow. Firstly, that was a comment in relation to my short story, The Jam Maker, which won the Harper's Bazaar Prize. She was one of the judges. And honestly, I was floored by a comment like that. I felt reading not just her comment, but all the judges' comments, all of them are people in publishing that you hugely look up to, and Bernadine especially, after the incredible year that she 
has had and all her success. To be honest, it felt like it wasn't about me, if I'm honest. I felt, and I, I find that sometimes, I find the praise is easier to hold at arm's length, not because it's not important or special, because it is, because it's almost too much. And I was completely blown away. It was beyond my never imagined that I would win that prize never imagined what doors it would open for me once I did and so to hear someone like Bernadine say that my words were gorgeous my imagery was good it was just like how do you take that it's kind of easier not to believe it in a way but yeah it was a very big deal for me inside it was something that definitely I held close I guess it's a reminder as well you know every time you doubt yourself you kind of need someone to tell you that you're doing the right thing. So Bernadine Everisto can tell me that I've done the right thing and I'm kind of trusting that I am. <laughs> I imagine it was such a huge boost, just, yeah, mentally, confidence-wise. We'd like to go back in time a little bit to your early writing career days. So after university, you talk about that you were hesitant about writing because you weren't sure how you'd make a living from it. But you ultimately did choose the path of a writer and with your first job at The Observer. What convinced you to pursue that path despite the doubts that you were having? I think it was just the only thing I ever wanted to do was to write. If you ever met my mum, I was going to invite her along, but then I thought, it, uh, then I didn't because I just, I didn't know if she'd be able to turn a camera off if she'd be with us. But um, <laughs> Just as obviously I'm not giving her enough credit that she probably would have. But anyway, if she was here, she would have no doubt told you that ever since I was a little girl, I used to write my own stories and make little books with paper covers. And I had this one story that she loves to tell everyone about that I wrote a story about a rabbit who lost its tail and then somehow it found its tail. But anyway, writing was the only thing I'd ever wanted to do. It was the only thing that ever made sense to me growing up I couldn't picture myself doing a job however when I got to a stage where you have to kind of make decisions about the fact that in real life you do have to have a job and you do have to make some money to live the only way that I could see that happen was if I was a journalist so I didn't have this burning desire to be a journalist necessarily and when you read how we met and now as well as I talk about it I wouldn't say journalism is something I would want to massively do again but it was a way to write it was a way to make a living from writing it was a way to get my name out and it taught me an awful lot about writing even though it wasn't necessarily the writing I had dreamed of doing you know I wanted to just write books and read books and write books obviously journalism isn't like that you don't spend ages on a draft you just you have a deadline you turn it around someone tells you they need you to find a quote for whatever and put it in your copy and this and that it's a different kind of craft I don't regret doing it but I'm also glad to have moved beyond it because I don't think it was what I wanted to do forever ultimately I used it as a stepping stone to get from journalism to writing books even though I say it was a stepping stone. I hadn't really thought that far ahead when I was doing it. I think it's only now that I can look back and see that this is what helped and it really did help. So, Mm. yeah. What were some of the key takeaways or lessons or ways of working or habits or tools that you took from your journalism days that have helped you in book writing and other kinds of writing? I think precision. 
I think even when you're writing something that's emotive and has emotion at the heart of it, I think being precise is what makes it real on the page. And I think that's also translated into the way that I approach short stories. You know, nothing is, I want to write in a way that nothing is superfluous. So I try to keep that with me always. And other than that, I think just the bad habit that it gave me is that in my newsroom, at least when we would write articles, we wouldn't draft them. You just you just wrote them. You'd maybe have a day or two days to work on it, but it's not like I would do, this is my first draft and now this is my second draft and then I'm going to show it to my editor. We just You just don't have time for that and your editors don't have time for that. So you just write it bang. And that's a really bad habit for me now because I'm working writing a novel and I have this real difficulty to accept that it doesn't have to be perfect on the page. And I kind of blame my journalism, my newsroom days for that because I want it to just come super quick and I just want to get that, nail that introduction. I remember that was the a piece of advice that an editor gave me was if you get your introduction right for your article, the rest of it just falls into place and you can leave these gaps for what you need to fill, like the percentage for that research or the quote from that spokesperson. And it just looks so neat. Novel writing or fiction writing or book writing isn't like that. So I still struggle with that. I struggle with being able to tell myself really doesn't have to be perfect in the first draft. And I can draft it a hundred times if I want to. So yeah, pros and cons, I suppose, what I took away with me. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. Um, Sticking to the same period of time, around the time you got into journalism, I'm interested in this idea of a turning point. And in your book, you mention a time in which you were dating and you went on a date with someone you describe as a brown Mr. Bean. And uh, his, I love that description. I love many of your descriptions. Um, but you talk about how his mother criticised you quite harshly, like she criticised um, who you were in essence. And it seemed like that changed something for you, potentially. You stopped dating and started focusing on, on work. I wonder if you can tell us anything about either that turning point or maybe there's one a little bit later on, that moment and how it influenced the trajectory of your work and your approach to writing? Yeah, I think, I don't know how much background I should give that people who do or don't know are familiar with the story of how we met, but it's basically about how I met my husband, but it's also a journey of exploring the different directions my life was pulling me in, the different directions, trying to reconcile the different expectations that both I had of myself and other people had of me. And part of that, partly because of my upbringing and background, was around the subject of marriage. So, yeah, I was (laughs) looking for someone to marry, quite frankly. And I ended up seeing someone who, or being introduced in a very kind of marriage way to a guy, like you say, who was the brown Mr. Bean. And his mother was, yeah, very, very critical. Part of that was like you say, just who I was. And also I think right, my career would come under this big question mark because, you know, I wasn't a doctor or a dentist. I was a journalist and that was a kind of crazy out there thing to do for some people. So I think faced with all the criticism and the self-doubt and the anguish that came with the expectation of needing to get married that I'd kind of put on myself as much as I'd absorbed it from people around me, it just reached a point where it was too much. And I think that focus, my focus was just all wrong, really. I spent my 20s focusing on getting married when 
perhaps I should have been better off focusing on myself. And I think that was a lesson I needed to learn. And in terms of my writing and my work, I don't quite know how it happened that I ended up at the Observer. I mean, I know how it happened. There was a process to it, but I still don't know how it was me. I was not... I'm not the kind of person that walks into a room and holds the room. I remember being at an interview for that position and, you know, there there was a group interview to begin with and there was a pitching session with an editor and the people pitching, I distinctly remember, they were all boys pitching. They were all very confident. They, you know, Oxbridge guys. And I just basically sat there and the editor I think he saw that perhaps I wanted to say something, but I didn't quite know how to interject because these Oxbridge boys had taken the room. And he said to me, he said, you look like you have something to say. And so then I pitched and for whatever reason, that must have helped towards the fact that I got the job. But even though I was at the Observer and it was my first job on a national newspaper and I was aware of the enormity of that, I I knew that No, there was mostly the route to journalism. You're told that you need so much work experience and this and that. And I had some work experience, but I hadn't dedicated all my university life towards working towards getting on a newspaper. So I had this really lucky shot and I was there. But at the same time, my focus was always kind of elsewhere because I wasn't happy with myself and I lacked the confidence to really be in that moment. I was aware that on paper, it looked like I had success just like that. I just walked into a national newspaper and was a reporter and it just happened. And it it kind of did. And I did work for it as well. But at the same time, it was another example of feeling like it was happening to someone else and not to me. So, yeah, that turning point that you talk about was really a moment of confrontation where I needed to stop and ask myself why I was letting myself be defined by other people's values and that hang on a minute I'm I'm actually doing really well and that's not fair (laughs) those kind of criticisms and judgment isn't fair and it's it's time for me to work on myself so it was a lot of I think it was like a like a mid-crisis in my 20s a midlife crisis in my 20s where I I had to kind of realize there was so much stuff going on I'd lost my father there was a lot of grief I was really unsure about myself and the direction my life was going and writing was the only thing I really had. So it was at that time that I started exploring creative writing as well. So mm, I love that story. I love that you shared that. Thank you. Thank you for the way you put it. I resonated with it so much. There's another turning point you mentioned in the book, and this is when you meet someone you really admire, Ramona. And she's a Muslim journalist and you see her, it seems like she's your tribe. You finally find like you found someone who you really connect with. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that notion of meeting someone with whom you really feel like you belong and maybe how that influenced your writing. Yeah. So Ramona is Ramona Ali. I don't know if you've read any of her work, but she's quite prolific as a journalist. Her work appears a lot in The Guardian and she's unapologetic about who she is. And I think I needed someone like that to show me that I didn't have to be apologetic for who I was because I think I'd fallen into that in my 20s. I think what she did was show me that you could be a woman in your 20s and not have your life planned out and yet live in the moment. She's very much that person for me. And she showed me that just by being herself, you know, I could just see how confident she was. 
hugely confident. And I think that was something I'd always lacked in my my career or my life as well, I guess, a little bit, was just having a role model of a woman who didn't care what other people thought, especially a Muslim woman who shared my background, who didn't care what other people, what, you know, the aunties thought and so on and so forth. And she wrote what she wanted to write and she didn't care about the trolls below the line. I really admired that. And yeah, I think I write in the book that meeting her just sort of gave me a jolt back to life that actually I don't need to carry all this stuff with me. I can just let it go and just be who I want to be. Um, And I think that freedom, I suppose, was really liberating to see. I think something as a woman of my background, of my parents Pakistani, I was born and brought up here, but you're very aware of that when you're in a newsroom, when no one else looks like you or no one can pronounce your name, even though you say it to them a hundred times a day to correct them. It's hard, actually. And I think when you're 23, 24, and that's your first job, you are so completely unprepared for that. And there's no one that you can talk to about it either. I'm not saying that there weren't women there. There were women there and they were, you know, there were some lovely editors that who really took me under their wing. But it's not quite the same when you have these feelings like you don't quite belong and you don't know why. It's like this subconscious feeling and you don't know what to do with that and you don't know how to say it and you don't know if you're making it up. You don't know if you're just imagining it. So to meet someone who showed me that actually those feelings that I felt were probably valid, but you don't need to let them hold you back or define you was a real turning point. And it wasn't long after I met Ramona that I actually decided to go freelance. I wouldn't say it was just because of her, but it was definitely this moment of like letting go of of expectations a little bit and just taking a risk was something that I feel her personality definitely brought out in me. And I, yeah, she's very, very dear to me and she is um. She's read the book and she loves it. So. That's great. So nice to have role models like that or just people that you can kind of see yourself in as fuel and a push to keep going. So we'd like to dig into your memoir now, How We Met. In the beginning, you say or you wrestle with the idea of not knowing if you even have a story to tell or if your story is remarkable or unique enough to tell. Can you tell us what is the story that you're trying to say with How We Met and why did you ultimately decide to write and tell that story, that you did indeed have a story to, to share? Well, I guess, down to your first part of your question, the story was about how I met my husband, who is Richard, who isn't from my background. He's um, just a normal English guy. And to some people, maybe that isn't a story to tell, like a big deal. But to me, it was a big deal because it was a huge thing for me to do that when there was this expectation that I would be introduced to someone in a very traditional sort of way which just to say I don't think there is anything wrong with that at all it just didn't work for me so that was the story ostensibly is how I met my husband the real story is the story that I think was worth telling which is the one that's underneath that which is the story of becoming and growing and finding love yes but finding it for someone, but also finding it for myself as well, which I know verges on sounding a little bit cheesy, but the in, in the course of the memoir, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but go through this period of growing up when you're kind of in your early 20s to late 20s, when you feel like you should have everything sorted out in your life and you feel like everyone else your age has, but 
you haven't and you don't know what you're doing and and you're feeling lost and you know combined with that was the loss of a parent who I loved dearly and I think that unsettled my foundations quite a lot more than I think I realized to be honest and I realized that the story of how I met my husband wasn't just the story of how we met. It was a story of me growing and finding my voice. And it's hard to assume that your life is important enough to write a book about. And I never really assumed that. And I think as someone who is relatively introverted and quite shy and quite private, normally it's not something that necessarily would have been the first thing in my mind. I never planned to say yes one day I'm going to have this marvellously exciting life and I'm going to write my memoir because my life isn't marvellously exciting. But I think that's what real people need to know, right? Real people need to see themselves in stories. And it doesn't mean we have to have the same background to take something from my story. But I think it means that if anyone has ever felt lost, bewildered, lost a parent, not known what the aftermath of that is. I think all of those things are things that you can relate to in my story. So that's what made me realize that actually I did have a story to tell. And I think the quieter stories are the ones in which we can see ourselves and feel ourselves. And I think we need that as humans. We need to have some way of making sense of our feelings or being able to identify them. And sometimes that really is reading a book and seeing it and saying, God, yeah, I remember what that, I know what that felt like. I feel like she's, she's writing about me. I feel like this is my story. And that is amazing when people have told me that they felt that because in a way that's what I search for in books myself. So to know that I can give that to someone else is just like overwhelmingly touching really. It's another one of those moments where I think it's not really me that they're talking about, but they are. And yeah, sorry, I don't know if that's completely answered your question, but well, we have plenty more questions to keep digging into. <laughs> so another one is when you first thought about telling the story, did it start as a book or did you think it might be something else? It didn't start as a book, actually. And I think that was because I perhaps subconsciously at some level didn't fully believe that it was a story worth telling. I think I've got a little intruder here. Did it start off as a memoir? No, because I didn't sit down and think I'm going to write a memoir about my life. What happened was that I was reading a lot of essays. I was particularly taken by Emily Pine's notes to self, and I read it and I reread it. And I was just, I read, I must have reread it about seven times. Honestly, it just completely blew me away. The rawness of her the simplicity and the rawness of her writing really moved me. And it, again, it was another example of how far removed our lives were. Very little in common in on paper. And yet the deeper emotions that we all at some level feel and experience and the way that she articulated that really moved me. So I read her essays and I also read a couple of other essay collections. I remember reading Constellations by Sinead Gleason. And I loved the essay form. At the time, they fitted into my lifestyle. I was had three little boys and it was a brilliant way to feel like I'd really connected deeply with something very literary and very meaningful in a short space of time. So I liked that essay form and I was kind of inspired by that really to write my own essays. I was also, I think because I had, my children were very young and I was very aware of time passing very quickly. 
I wanted to pin that down and it sort of made sense to do that in a short form because everything was quite intense at the time. The life was quite intense when you've got young, young children and it, it just passes in an instant. And I, I was very aware of that element of time passing. So I began writing essays to myself and there was an essay that referenced how I met Richard. It wasn't at all the same story, but there was an element of those themes of how it wasn't so much about finding him as it was about finding myself and so on and so forth. That came out and it just so happened that that essay through, I suppose, thanks to the journalism, got in front of an editor who then started a conversation about what I wanted to do and where I was going with my writing. And then that was how How We Met kind of came. So it, it started as an essay. I started exploring writing more vulnerably than I ever had done. And from there, you know, there was some gentle probing from Olivia, my editor, who sort of gave me the reassurance that there was something in this and that if I took self-doubt aside and I took that lack of confidence aside, actually I did have a story to tell and I guess I needed her to tell me that. So thank mm. you. <laughs> yeah. I do have one follow-up question on that. So you talked about there was the story of how you met, but then the story underneath. Did that story underneath come out when you wrote the essay or did it come out through writing the book? Where did that emerge? Where did you, did you find that clarity? That's a really good question because I think in the essay, I didn't let myself go there. And I think Olivia, when my editor, when she read that first essay, probably could tell that I was holding back at some level. And I think, I don't think I was consciously doing it. I think I just subconsciously knew I wasn't going to go there. I just somehow decided without making a conscious decision. It was when I was writing, when I sat down to write more long form that it, it, became very apparent that that was a story to tell here and it was yeah it came out with each I'd say I probably did about three drafts and then lots of little drafts where it was just like little bits here and there I'd say by the kind of second draft it was quite apparent that I had to be honest on the page because if I wasn't it just didn't go far enough to make that connection that I would look for in a piece of writing and and so I opened myself up to it. Mm. And you do open yourself up. You give very specific stories and anecdotes. You talk about the guy you went on the date with, the, the Saddam Hussein in a lemon V-neck sweater, leaving your sad girl room. And then there's a Fruit of the Loom t-shirt guy. These are all really interesting and very specific stories. I wondered, are there many that you left out? Were there some that you didn't put in that you wish you had? Honestly, no. That period of my life was as it is in the book to be honest I added one of them in who originally I had kept out because I thought perhaps it was too close but I realized that actually it was the that kind of anecdote was one that revealed so much and said so much not just about me but about what I was up against in a way so I went back I think I added the and again, I'm sorry if this doesn't make sense to anyone who hasn't yet read the book, but I added the the one about the plum jam. I don't remember that. Oh, who's the mother I was trying to impress very greatly. 
I went back and added that in. That was the family friend's son who was I was being match made with. Um, and I didn't originally put him in. He didn't appear until the very last edit on the book, I think. But I realized that actually by that point, I think I had been so open on the page that it felt like there's no need to hold this back because that was another real turning point for me. And it's not just telling these anecdotes for the sake of them. And I, and I wasn't, and I hope it doesn't come across that I'm just I don't know, making fun of them or... No, it did, definitely didn't to me. Yeah, it, they were really, like those encounters really affected me. I think the reactions that I got really affected me. And in particular, the very last suitor that I just touched on, the son of a family friend, I think that really affected me almost more because it felt so the whole process felt to me really unfair the way I had been caught up in it and I think it was my reaction to that was really crucial in that journey to figuring out what felt right to me and what didn't feel right to me and what I wanted to change and what I couldn't change but what was in my control as well so they were all really important moments in shaping every next decision that I took yeah. And I mean, the Plum Jam story is one of vulnerability. The way I read it was that you're trying to impress a family and going out of your way to make Plum Jam to show that you're that type of woman. Like I understand I come from an Indian household. I, you know, I do, I'm a good girl when I have to be. So I understand that. And then getting rejected, that's a very, very vulnerable thing to share. And actually my reflection on your book was that it felt like I was sitting with you at your home or in a cafe and you were a friend and you were telling me all these very specific and vulnerable moments and one of my favorite editors talks about specificity breeds universality like the deeper we go into a specific moment the more chance we have of it being something that is universally understood and I wondered when you were writing did you think of a specific reader did you have an audience even if it was just a friend in mind that Uh helped your voice I did actually and it it might sound a bit nuts but I had a I still have a very specific picture of myself at the age of 11 going to secondary school that was the girl I wrote it for because I know what it felt like to be her yeah I reached this moment in the book towards the end where I talk about sort of thinking of the past versions of myself I think of the girl I used to be And I hope that I've done right by her. And that is something I think about every day, to be honest. I know what it was like to be uncomfortable and not sure what you're doing and to feel a bit bewildered, constantly bewildered and overwhelmed by everyone else and so much happening and always wondering how it was that other people seem to be so effortless and carry themselves with confidence. And I was small and shy and had my big glasses and you know like I really feel for that the child that I was he became that awkward teenager he became that unsure 20-something year old I feel for all of them and I, I wish in a way that I could have told them that even though it felt so unlikely that they would do anything that they dreamt of that they really would so I definitely had that little 11 year old in my life I can see her so clearly and yeah I think I feel like I did write it for her so that she would know that she would be okay. Mm. 
again, I feel like I resonate with so much of what you say. It makes sense to me. And I, I wanted to just turn a little bit to the, the plotting in the book and, and how you bridge the different times of your life. So you talk about the past, those days, and then you talk about the present, these days. And as I was reading, I remember thinking, gosh, I wonder how you plotted that out. Did you have one document that plotted that? Did you, would it come naturally? Can you talk to that at all? Absolutely. So I read a lot of memoirs. So as part of the, not necessarily inspiration, but when I was at that stage where I felt like I wanted to write something, even if it was for myself, and I started exploring the essays, I was reading essay collections and I was getting hungry for first person stories. So I was reading a lot of memoirs by women. And when it came to writing my memoir, when I knew that, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. I have an editor who's interested. I would be a fool to let this opportunity pass me by. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and go to where the story is, the real story underneath the story. I felt very clear that I didn't want to write this chronological memoir. I didn't want to start at the beginning and end at the end. I didn't want it to be that formulaic in a way. I wanted to do something different. And I spent some time with a notebook, quite simply underlining things over and over again. I kept writing the question, what's the story really about? I kept writing it over and over again because I wanted to push myself to that place where I really had to ask myself, how far are you going to go? So every time I wrote the question, and it's nuts, really. I mean, I don't have the notebook with me right now, but if I did, I, you would see that it looks like the scribblings of a mad woman. Like it's, what's the real story about? What's the real story about? Scribble, 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 like underline, what's the real story about? Over and over again, because that just really helped me in my head, even though you don't see the results of that on the page, it was happening in my head. And that really helped me focus, like constantly asking myself, what's the real story here? And I sat down the opening of how we met is as I wrote it pretty much the first opening that just goes into these days and that just happened quite naturally I literally opened the document I thought okay I think I'm ready I think I'm going to start with this and the question of how we met was something that had been swimming in my mind for a long time because my eldest son had asked me how I had met Dabo, his dad my husband and that felt to me like answering that question was a way into the story that only I could answer for him and so it felt very natural to start at that point so I use that very natural conversation very real conversation that we had that had stuck in my head and was swimming around in response to what's the story about what's the story really about the opening just I typed and just typed these days and I wrote that and it sounds like that happened very easily and it did and it didn't because I think I very consciously knew, like I said, I didn't want to do a chronological, let's start with me as a little girl and going through the motions. I didn't feel like that would be interesting enough, to be honest. So the contrast of these days and the fact that there was a question to be answered kind of made sense to me. And it just these days, those days wasn't something that came as an afterthought. It came in the first draft and I just I started writing it in that way. And I wasn't convinced it was going to work myself because I wondered, there was a point in the first draft where I wondered whether it was too confusing. Am I 
there are too many kind of backups and forwards, but actually it's just two timelines. It's present and the past. And I I liked the interchanging of the tenses. I liked the way that that brought these days to life. I liked the fact that I it enabled me to look back and then to bring that when I write about those days, I was able to write from a place of distance rather than having to tell it chronologically where I'd be in that moment. And then I couldn't necessarily go into the depth of emotion because it would have happened to me at that point in my life. So it enabled me to look back. So yeah, that's how I I structured it. I wouldn't necessarily say, I, I mean, I didn't map it out before I started writing. I didn't have like a board with post-it notes. I just wrote it. And the more I wrote, I think because it was my lived experience, it was there in my head. So I didn't have characters that I needed to plot and I didn't have to put in a moment of tension. That part was already done for me in a way. So yeah, it was a really interesting question that you asked. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's always interesting to hear how different writers plot out. So we'd like to go deeper into the vulnerability and the uh, being honest on the page. And in particular, writing about people that you know and love. You write about your mother, you write about your husband. And this is a question that many people have when writing memoir, what to include, what do you not include? So a few questions around this, but in writing your story, what was the most difficult moment to write about when it related to someone that you care and love love deeply? The person that I was most, I wanted to take most care of was my mother in, in the book because we have these sort of moments of tension in the book that I wanted to make it very clear that our relationship wasn't defined by them any more than it is anyone else who might have an off day with their mum or their dad and you slam a door and the next day things might feel a bit better or you've completely forgotten. I think that's a really real way of living. And I don't think we see that enough necessarily. I think there can be some memoirs where it becomes a space for... I want to use the word revenge because everyone who writes a memoir has a story in that memoir. But do you know what I mean? Like sometimes there's this, sometimes they can go to a place which just feels, I don't know, a little too much maybe. And I, I think I was very careful with myself that I didn't want to portray any of my family members as being defined by these one or two arguments that happened in a lifetime. That felt really unfair. So I did take care to show that, yes, you can have very loving parents and you can have what some people might consider liberal parents or whatever, but you can also still have certain expectations or you can have certain rules. I mean, it's normal life, right? You can hold all these multitudes within you and yet still be one whole person and yet still be a family. You can love each other one day, you can argue the next day. That's just how life is. And I really, really wanted to capture that. And I really wanted to take care on the passages with my mother that there's this moment where I talk about a tension between us, like a misunderstanding and arguments and it being the stuff of teenage years that kind of carried on a little bit into my 20s, into that difficult, unsteady, unsure stage of my life. And I, I wanted to show that actually in a way, what led us down that path was not because she was some distant remote mother because she wasn't, but it was actually because there's so much love there, it was overwhelming in a way. And that's what I wanted to be careful with, was to not let her 
be defined by something she accidentally said and probably had absolutely no intention of her daughter one day putting in a memoir you know what I mean so I was most protective I guess of her and she was she's just been brilliant about the whole thing so Mm. what's been that conversation like with her either while you were writing it or after you wrote it so before I wrote the book and when I was in the very early stages of writing the book, I felt like I needed to tell her what I was doing sooner rather than later. We had an awkward phone conversation where I said to her, oh, I'm, I'm kind of writing again and an editor's interested and I think I might write about that phase of my life, you know, when, you know, all that arranged marriage stuff was going on. And she at first didn't know why I wanted to write and she said well why why do you have to write that story and I think her fear was that I was going to write something perhaps critical of a culture or a tradition that I'd been raised in and that had never been my intention I only ever wanted to write what it had felt like for me and it's never going to be a statement and was never meant to be representative of anything or anyone and I think once she understood that Um, I can understand why she felt that way as well. I think once she understood that and I said to her, well, you know, I think it's the the only story that I know how to tell and I think it's important to tell it because I had no one to talk to about those things when I was growing up. And then I think she really understood and she left me to it and I went away and wrote the book. And my, I think when we got to sort of copy edits, maybe she got sent the manuscript as like just as, paper in the post and I didn't know that she'd been sent it which was actually a really good thing because I think if I'd known that she'd read it or she had it I would have just been like oh my god what's she thinking oh my god I should I call her should I not call her and so it it was actually the best way it could have worked out because she read it without me knowing and then she sent me this message where she was it was a beautiful message and one that I think I'll keep forever and she said that she was so touched by it. It made her laugh. It made her cry. But it also made her feel sad because she didn't know how I had felt when I was in my 20s and feeling so kind of lost. She said, I'm just really sorry that I, I didn't know that that was how it felt for you. And I think that honesty on the page, like I kind of feel a real relief in a way for putting it out there. And then as she kind of got used to the idea of me writing the book, we had a conversation during the writing of it where I wanted to check something with her. And I had remembered something completely differently to how she remembered it. And then I realized that her version was probably right because there were certain things that made sense. So that was really kind of, I don't know, that felt really, really good and positive. Like we were working on that little section together. Mm. So I think being honest with the people that will appear in your book is is really important but I think it's also really important to make to own that it's your story and you're just telling your story about yourself not about the other people it's not about them it's just about because how can I how can I write about how they were feeling because I will never know so yeah it's yeah tell them that you're writing it and I was lucky because Richard was just like, just write it. You need to write this. And he understood why it was so important to me. So it's mm, great. I guess I want to go a little bit deeper on this writing about other people and writing vulnerably and writing about your own experiences. Now, a lot of people or some people might be trying to write about trauma or difficult moments. 
And I'm wondering, what's your take on writing about a painful experience? How does someone tell if there's been enough distance between the experience and their ability to write about it, or if they're still in the process of processing it, and maybe it's too early to write about? Do you have a a take or an opinion on that? I think it has to feel intuitive, and it has to be that you follow your instincts on that, because it's only you that's ever going to know how raw or real something feels. I don't think I could have written this story any earlier than I did. I think it needed to be written 10 years later, which it was, because if I had written it even a couple of years ago, I think there would have been things that still affected me in a different way, or maybe I couldn't see clearly enough. I think time gives you perspective. I think it's really hard though, isn't it? Because like you could to write about grief, for instance, is never going to be easy because you relive that person as a living person in the writing of them. And that's something that you have to also allow yourself to feel in order for it to come out in an honest, authentic way on the page. So you have to know that you're in a strong enough place to do that again, because they do. They, you know, my father died many years ago now, over 10 years ago, more like 14 years, I think. It's never very clear in my head because that time period to me is very blurred. Like I'd have to work it out when exactly it was. But in the process of writing the book, he came alive again. And I know that I'm, you know, I'm in a place now where I can talk about him quite openly and quite honestly and with a smile on my face instead of like being on the verge of tears. It doesn't bring me to tears in the same way because I have had time and perspective to appreciate who he was and and that he was here but then now he has gone like you can begin to accept it in a way that you can't when it's in in the first year or the second year but also you can't put a time on it because only you can know so if I was someone I don't know if someone was wanting to write their memoir about something traumatic or emotional and it doesn't need to be dramatic in order for it to be those things it can be something quiet that happened to you but still really changed you or affected you in some way I just ask yourself if you're ready to live it again and if you feel like you can and you can do it without necessarily feeling like it's too much then you should explore that if that's what you feel compelled to do. Thank you. My final question is probably just around your voice because you've been writing first person pieces and now your memoir and I wondered if there are any lessons or maybe even exercises that you have done that have helped you really understand your voice and what feels right for you? Yeah, I think I have written first-person pieces. I'd written a lot of first-person pieces before I wrote it in a book, but I wrote them in newspaper form and I'd always written them to the tone of a newspaper or their supplement or their magazine And I think what's been good for me is actually taking some distance from another publication's voice or tone or style and letting go of that. And that distance, like we talked at the beginning about sort of my path into journalism and how now I feel like actually I don't know if I would go back there. And one of those reasons is because I don't know if my voice would remain my voice if it's being house styled and, you know, 
glossed to fit the tone of a publication instead of actually what is my voice, which I like to think of as something that is lyrical and has a musicality to it. And you lose that in a newspaper piece, in a first-person piece that's written for, for print. Sometimes you do lose that. Not all the time. There are like spaces for that in magazines maybe, but definitely in like newspaper form, for me, it loses some of who I really am. And taking some distance from that and listening to myself, not necessarily my speaking voice, but like listening to my intuitive voice, I guess, and writing on the page in a way that is simple, but makes sense to me and meaningful. That's always what I've aspired to, is to write simply, but mean in a way that is meaningful. And I think my process in getting there was to close the doors and all those other kind of outlets of write for this newspaper or for that newspaper and just focus mm. on this one thing. And, and I feel that the book is my voice. I feel that that is, that is me. Thank you. And if someone's starting out fresh, they haven't written any pieces elsewhere and they want to find their voice, maybe they're starting to think about writing their memoir. Would some of that still apply to so just writing as simply as you can, as directly as you can? I think so, because I think if you write as simply as you can and as directly as you can, it comes from your heart. And I really believe that. And I believe that if you can infuse your writing with that, that's what makes it real. So you need to look at a way to be honest and to be vulnerable. And if that means that you write, what's my story really about a hundred times before you get there, then that's a way to do it. I mean, some people say things like that if you record your sort of thoughts out loud and then transcribe them, that you catch the, the intonation of your voice and you catch the rhythm of your words. And there may be some truth to that. I'm, I haven't done that. But I do think that, you know, like when people say that your book is like sitting down with a friend and having a chat, I think that is because it's the way that I think, it's the way that I my thoughts happen. So I put it on the page in the same way. And obviously the beautiful stuff comes afterwards, the, the imagery, the that kind of craft comes afterwards. But I think just letting yourself hear what you're thinking and then put that on the page without trying to craft it the moment your pen hits the paper or your fingers touch the keyboard, like the craft can wait and find the honesty of it first. Right. Yeah, they the stay in the writer's, on the, within the writer's room, the writer's hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank That's you. Wonderful. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Huma, for being here with us and everything you've given us. This has been great. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers' Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.